0: What's the biggest crowd that you were ever a part of? What's the biggest crowd that you've ever been a part of? Perhaps it was a sports event, perhaps it was a concert, or a national celebration. Just have a quick uh, think. I was thinking about the biggest crowds I've been part of. I've been to a fairly full Twickenham uh, for a varsity rugby match. I've cheered on as part of a capacity lords, which is about 28,000. But I think the biggest crowd I've ever been part of was in 2002, when I was on the mound together with over a million people uh, for the Queen's Golden Jubilee, and there was a big procession, and she came past. But you know, if you've been part of any large crowd, that being part of a crowd is a very kind of special experience. The excitement and enthusiasm carries you along, and for a while you're kind of caught up in a often a wave of emotion and expression. Uh, and you kind of feel connected to others, you feel part of something bigger. And even we reserved British find ourselves talking to others actually in a crowd. It's kind of one of the unwritten rules that you are actually allowed to talk to people you don't know. But if you're part of a crowd, I don't know about you, but there are two other things that we might, might want to just remember about a crowd. First of all, we know that being a crowd can actually be quite a dangerous experience because a crowd can whip up emotions uh, where we can find ourselves doing things and saying things that we wouldn't normally do. The Nuremberg rallies of the 1930s are a good example of this. But political leaders before and since have known the potential of a crowd to whip up a crowd and turn them into a mob. Secondly, we know that being part of a crowd is a transitory experience. It doesn't last. Many of us will have experienced the feeling when the match, the concert or the event is over and we make our way home with a warm feeling, if our team has won, or the concert's been good. But nevertheless, realising that we're not part of that crowd anymore. But we're an individual with choices, homes, and responsibilities all of our own. So a crowd is something exciting, but also potentially dangerous and certainly transitory. Why do I tell you that? Well, today I want to tell you the story of a crowd. It's not a crowd that meets now but it's a crowd that met 2,000 years ago. It was a crowd of perhaps 20,000 people who were gathered on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It was gathered that crowd to witness a man who is becoming incredibly well known. That man was Jesus Christ and as the crowd and as we trace how the crowd sought and responded to Jesus that day I think we'll see all the potential of a crowd but all the danger too. And we'll also be reminded of the choices that face us as individuals. Now our guide today is the Apostle John, whose gospel we are dipping into as we prepare for life to the full, our our parish mission uh, next month. Let me explain how we're doing that. Each month as we prepare for life to the full, as we go through to Easter, uh, we're looking at kind of one theme per month And it's a kind of different theme that prepares us to remember the good news of Jesus Christ. In January, remember, we looked at the theme of grace, God's unmerited gift to us. And this month, we're looking at the theme of abundance. So two weeks ago, Chris spoke about Jesus turning water into wine. Last week, Mike spoke about living water, uh, which Jesus promised the woman at the well. And today, we look at Jesus feeding the 5,000. Only as we'll see it wasn't just 5,000 and as we'll see it wasn't just feeding them, it was giving them more than enough. There are great reminders here today of why Jesus was good news to the crowd then and why he is now. If you're here this morning and you're just exploring faith, you're perhaps seeking after truth, I hope there is a message here this morning that grabs you and makes you want to explore more. If you're already a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, I hope your hearts will be fired afresh by the good news of Jesus, but also challenged by the response that Jesus seeks. So perhaps you'd take your Bibles, if you haven't got them open already, and turn with me to John chapter 6. It's on page 1069. John chapter 6, there are Bibles just in the seats in front of you, and it would help if we looked at this passage together. And there's a batting order on a pink piece of paper that's in with your newsletters. And you'll see that I'm suggesting we look at this passage under three headings. First of all, a curious search, verses 1 to 4. Secondly, a lavish meal, verses 5 to 13. And thirdly, a flawed response, verses 14 to 18. So first of all, a curious search. Let's just set the scene, shall we? Jesus has arrived back in Galilee. That's the area based around the Sea of Galilee, about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. This is what it looks like. You've got Jerusalem at the bottom there, uh, underlined in red. And then 100 miles north, you've got the area of Galilee around, clustered around uh, the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Galilee was the uh, center where Jesus had been brought up. And although he went to Jerusalem to worship, as any good Jew did in those days, Galilee was his home home and the center of his early ministry. And it was in Galilee that Jesus had turned water into wine, uh, in, as narrated in John chapter 2. It was in Galilee that he'd healed the official son in John chapter 4. And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus did a number of other miracles in the Galilee area, and so he was making quite a name for himself in that area where he'd been brought up. If you look at verse 1, John tells us that Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. Now what does that mean? Well, here's a close-up of the Sea of Galilee. The main areas of population were on the north and west. So you can see those clusters of towns, Capernaum, Gennesaret, Magdala and Tiberias. They're all still there. And that was the main area where uh, people lived. And so when John says they, he referred to the other side, that meant to the eastern side, which was less populated. It had mountains, so it was less easy to be settled. You see a few towns there. Gergesa is one of them. And that side was actually largely pagan area, so it was where Jews tended not to go. It was mountainous, more mountainous than the western side. And uh, why did Jesus go there? Well, Jesus, uh, John doesn't tell us explicitly, but the hint in verse 3 is when Jesus goes up the hill to be with his disciples, and this is a hint confirmed in the other gospel accounts, is that Jesus went to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee to get away from it all. When he went up to the mountain, mountains were the place where he commonly prayed. And, And so very much a combination of rest and prayer were on Jesus' agenda as he took a boat probably from Capernaum across, kind of in direction of southeast, towards the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. But unfortunately, rest and relaxation and prayer were not going to happen. Why? Well, because of the crowd. What do we know about the crowd? Well, first of all, we know that it was a big crowd. Uh, John calls it twice a great crowd, and tells us later there were 5,000 men there. But bearing in mind that word in Greek literally refers to males and we know there were women and children there as well, the children are mentioned in the story, we can easily expect up to 20,000 people in that crowd, including women and children. Secondly, we know where they'd come from. Like Jesus, they'd come from the towns and the villages on the western, northern side of the lake. And while Jesus, we think, crossed by boat, they would have walked round the top of the lake. Uh, hence why they got there after Jesus. Yeah? So that's why they're there. Thirdly, we know why they'd come. John tells us in verse 2 that they'd followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. This was a crowd that wanted to see more of what Jesus was doing. They'd heard about the official son being cured. They'd heard about the other healing miracles. And this had aroused their interest. And don't forget, in a world where X factor didn't exist, Jesus was the most exciting thing going on. He was a bit of a celebrity of his day. They'd come to see and find out a bit more. And fourthly, I think we know what they were feeling. Well, we don't know, but John gives us a really big clue in verse four when he says, the Jewish Passover feast was near. Now that was meant to ring all sorts of bells for John's readers and some of them are explained in the sermon that Jesus gives a bit later on. But one of the things we know was that Passover time was a time of national fervor and excitement within Israel. Do you remember what Passover is about from our Exodus series? Passover was the time when the people of God remembered getting rid of an evil ruler and being ruled by themselves. Now, in those days, it was Pharaoh, but every time Passover was celebrated, they thought, hang on, we got rid of that nasty ruler once. I wonder if we could get rid of another nasty ruler, this time the one in Rome. So it was a time of kind of hope, expectation, a bit of angst, a bit of campaigning that God was going to do something special for his people again. It was a politically charged occasion. So I guess what I want us to see is when we think of this crowd of people that Jesus sees, um, we mustn't think of them as a pious group of well-organized pilgrims making their way merrily round the Sea of Galilee in order to sit patiently at Jesus' feet. This is a messy collection of Galilee residents, intrigued by the word on the street about who Jesus was, wanting to see him for themselves, wanting to see if, they, if he was who he hoped he was, they was. And that is what prompted the crowd's search for Jesus. It wasn't a kind of faith search, it wasn't devotion, it was a curiosity about Jesus. They hadn't made their mind up on who he was, but they'd sensed that there was something special about him. And the only way they could do and find out more was to watch him and listen to him. And I think it's still Jesus that people find curious. For all the mud that's been thrown at the church over recent years, some of it very well aimed, none of it is stuck to Jesus. He is the man who people can't lay a punch on. He is the man who won't be put in a pigeonhole. He is the man who makes us scratch our heads and say, who is he? As the crowd well know, Jesus said things and did things that set him completely apart. You may have seen that Stephen Fry YouTube video where he rails against God for creating a world with suffering and says, and I quote, how much simpler, purer, cleaner and more worth living a life is without God. But it's striking to me as I watch that interview that Stephen Fry comes up to that uh, opinion entirely without engaging with the person of Jesus. doesn't mention him. But it's Jesus who opens the chance to find out who the real God is. Not the imagined tyrant God of our own illusion. Not the distorted view that Stephen Fry presents. Perhaps you're seeking truth. Or meaning this morning. Perhaps you're realizing that the things that we're told a full life is all about, stuff and achievements and leisure and pleasure, they don't actually add up to all we hoped. You're looking for something that goes deeper and lasts longer. Can I invite you, come and watch and listen to the person of Jesus Christ. You'll find reliable records in the Bible. That show us him through the eyes of eyewitnesses. He is somebody worth looking at for yourself. Perhaps you're already a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. Can I remind you of the good news that we are seeking to share as a church during life to the full? The good news is not about Holy Trinity Claygate. The good news is not about the Church of England. The good news is that we are seeking to give people a sight of Jesus and the life that he offers because it is Jesus that makes people curious. It is Jesus that people wanted to see that day on the shores of Galilee. Not a system, not a religion, not a worldview, but a man. A curious search is a search for Jesus. Jesus made the crowd curious. He does too today. A curious search. Secondly, I want us to look at what happened next under the title, A Lavish Meal. And this is verses 5 to 13 in particular. Because John, that's a lovely wording where it says, when Jesus looked up, it literally says he lifted up his eyes. It's a lovely kind of description, really from somebody who was there. He says, John, Jesus lifted up his eyes. And he saw a great crowd coming towards him, but it wasn't just a great crowd he saw. It was a whacking great problem as well. Why? The crowd, you see, has traveled a number of hours to see him. They've walked across the top of the Sea of Galilee. And he knows that they'll want him to teach, and therefore they're going to stay another few hours with him. This is 20,000 people who will be away from their homes all day, if not more. And with no subway stores in Galilee, they are soon going to be very hungry. And do you know another word for a hungry crowd? It's called a mob. An army marches on its stomach. If they don't get food, things get pretty messy pretty quickly. And so Jesus performs this amazing miracle by way of necessity, because of the situation he was in. Using the five barley loaves, the staple diet of poor people in those days, and two small fish, Jesus creates enough food to feed everybody. Now John gives a little detail of what happens, the people sitting down in an orderly fashion, the disciples passing among the crowd, but there's no explanation of how it happened. It was a miracle. That's how John presents it, an interruption into the normal way in which our world works. But there's one thing that John does make very clear, and that's this. This was not a snack. This was not a snack. This was a lavish meal. There's two pointers to this. First of all, in verse 11, John says that they had as much as they wanted. And secondly, in verse 13, he's, verse 13 he says there was enough left over to fill 12 baskets. This was not a meal to take the edge off their hunger. You know the right, way you give a little biscuit to a child to stop them whinging? This was not that type of meal. This was a super abundance of food. The reference to 12 baskets is probably meant to symbolise the 12 tribes of Israel. There was an abundance of food, not only therefore for the crowd, but for all of God's people. That's what that means. So what do we think this meal says about Jesus, this miracle? Well, it certainly says something about who he is. As we'll see in a moment, the crowd clearly take this as the evidence they need that this man, Jesus, is sent from God. Only someone sent from God could do this amazing miracle. But I think there's another kind of layer of meaning as well. Because as well as pointing to who Jesus is, the lavish meal also points to what Jesus offers. He highlights, John, how Jesus gives which is in abundance. Jesus, therefore, does not give stintingly. He gives in abundance. Because for John, this is only one story in a series which has shown how Jesus gives in abundance. The miracle of the turning of the water into wine. Do you remember how much wine Jesus created? 2,000 glasses of the best quality wine. The story of the woman at the well. Do you remember the water he promised? He said, water that will last forever. I tell you, if you've been to the Holy Land, you want that water. Because water that will last forever sounds an amazing gift when wells go dry. And here he gives bread abundantly with more to spare. Now, none of those abundant gifts were earned or paid for. Jesus gave them abundantly as a gift. If you want to use another word, you could say that Jesus used, Jesus gave his gifts lavishly. Jesus gave his gifts lavishly. Now, none of the specific miracles recorded in John's Gospel are repeated today. They were miracles for their time. Nathan the Baker would be jolly pleased of that, otherwise, he'd be out of business. Ad would Excel, at the wine merchant. So th- those gifts that Jesus gave da- lavishly, then they're, they're not given today in the same way. But there's one thing that is given in exactly the same way: that Jesus continues to give lavishly. And that is his love. And that is his love. Our verse for the year as a church says this, you may remember it. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. The way that God lavished his love was when he sent Jesus into the world not just to do miracles, although they point to who he was but to die on the cross and take from himself all the mess, the sin, and the self-centeredness of our lives. That's love that will never run out, whatever we do and wherever we run. With that love comes forgiveness for every sin. There is nothing you have done or will ever do that cannot be covered or forgiven by this love that never runs out. This love that is lavished on us as a cloak that stretches on. I watched an interview the other day with Lance Armstrong. You know Lance Armstrong. He won seven Tour de France titles, an American cyclist. He was banned, as I'm sure you'll know, from cycling for life for taking performance-enhancing drugs. And he gave his second television interview to the BBC recently. And he spoke about his future and the interviewer suggested that uh, more than cycling again, he really wanted to be forgiven. And this is what Lance Armstrong said. We all want to be forgiven. There's a lot of really, really bad people who cannot be forgiven. Sorry, there's a lot of really, really bad people who want to be forgiven, but will never be forgiven. And I might be in that camp. I want to say to Lance Armstrong, you don't need to be. You don't need to be in that place of unforgiveness. Because the message of the Christian faith is that while we may have offended lots of people, the one we have hurt most is the God who made us. But that God, offended, ignored, blasphemed, lavished his love on us through Jesus dying on the cross so that we come and when we claim what Jesus did we can all be forgiven. Imagine this. Imagine sitting that day on that hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee and imagine sitting there as the bread came round the disciples passing among you sitting on the grass First, you feel just glad that you've got something to fill your stomach because it's aching. Then as the bread carried on coming, you began to feel full. And then you were so full you had to just let the baskets pass by because you couldn't eat anymore. You were embarrassed at such a gift. You couldn't believe such lavish provision because you hadn't earned it. Just imagine passing the bread by and the lavish gift. Now imagine sitting somewhere else, sitting this time at the foot of the cross, and seeing there Jesus, arms stretched out, dying a death he didn't need to die for you and for me. You think of all that needs to be forgiven in you, your pride, your lust your self-sufficiency, your God-forgetfulness. And you think his love can't forgive that. But it does. It covers it all. You earned it no more than the crowd earned their lunch. But it's yours to take. A lavish meal was not just then on a hillside. A lavish gift was given on another hill, a hill in Jerusalem, and a gift that keeps on giving. A curious search was a search for Jesus, a lavish meal. Thirdly, let's look at the response, a flawed response, I suggest, verses 14 to 15 because it's really interesting what the crowd does in fact they do two things first of all they begin to recognize that Jesus is not just an amazing man but something more verse 14 it says surely this is the prophet they say who was to come into the world and that word prophet relates back to one of the verses in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament where they kind of promised another Moses and they kind of say this is the kind of this is the one that God was going to send." that's the kind of thing they're trying to say but the really interesting thing they do, or try and do, is the second thing. Because having begun to recognize that Jesus was sent from God, they then try and take him in hand. If you look with me about last verse, verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So it's also if Jesus sees into their hearts and tracks in them a plan to make him be their king. What's going on here? Well, do you remember what I talked about Passover and the fact that Passover was a time of nationalistic fervour and patriotic ambition? It was a time when the people got excited about a change in those who were in charge. Out with a nasty dictator and in with a ruler from among their own people. Well, this crowd want Jesus to be their own ruler. And as one of the commentators say, they'd witnessed or heard of Jesus' miracles, they'd been fed by the food provided for his miraculous power, surely nothing could prevent such a person from being the powerful liberator that so many children of Israel longed for. And one might add, if he wasn't prepared to take on that role, they'd make him do it anyway. But you see what they're trying to do? They've got their political agenda, they've got their wish list, And having seen the power of Jesus, they want to make Jesus dance to their tune. They want to harness the power of Jesus to achieve one of their goals. They've got their agenda and they want Jesus to fit in with it. That's what's going on. It wasn't the first time that people had responded like this to Jesus and it wasn't going to be the last. Even today, it can seem like a really natural response once we discover something of who Jesus is. Because we kind of hear, if he really is that powerful, if he is the Son of God, if he is risen from the dead and living today, then surely he can kind of come in next to me and give me what I've always wanted. A stronger economy. Yes, please. Perfect health. Absolutely. Success in everything I do, if you don't mind. Pleasure and pain. no Pleasure and no pain, of course. But Jesus didn't follow the agenda of that crowd that day. And he doesn't today either. Jesus didn't come into the world. Jesus didn't come into the, didn't, didn't go to the cross so that he could follow us. But so that we could follow him. You see, the crowd ultimately showed a flawed response to Jesus that day. They expected him to follow them. Rather than they follow him. But before we peer down our noses at this crowd too much, we might reflect the times when in our prayers, desires and actions, we have done something similar. When we have been resentful when God has not given us what we wanted. When we have got cross when God's word has pointed in a different way to the way of the crowd. The response that Jesus looks for, is not for us to treat him like a bonus pack, there to add a little oomph to the direction we've already set ourselves. The response Jesus looks for is for us to set our eyes to follow him, wherever that takes us. And that's a decision we need to reach on our own. Because ultimately, following Jesus isn't something we do as part of a crowd we need to come to a view ourselves on how Jesus has loved us, how abundantly he's lavished his love on us and what that demands of us. So to help us do that, let me just finish by asking us to consider three questions. First of all, will we look afresh at Jesus, the compelling figure who attracted that crowd today and still compels attention today? Are we going to look to Jesus when all the stuff Clutters in, whether it's about church or work or family or life, will we say, I want to look at Jesus because he's the one who compels my attention? Secondly, will we receive the abundant, lavish gift of God's love stretched out on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that lavish meal that day on the hillside, it wowed the crowd, but it was only the starter the real lavish gift came down in Jerusalem when Jesus showed his love for the whole world. Love that forgives, love that never ends, love that we didn't earn, abundant love. Third, will we respond to Jesus' call to follow him? Because the crowd wanted Jesus to dance to their tune, but Jesus refused. He calls us to come into line with him, to follow him in his ways, in response to his great love for us. And so will we say yes to that offer and that invitation? If we do so, we have a greater crowd in front of us. For that crowd on the Mall in 2002 will be as nothing compared to the crowd that one day I will join and we will join, crowds from every tongue and every land, singing praise to the one who gave his life for us, the lamb who was slain, when in glory we sit before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray.